welcome to the Red Pill Training Podcast. We are back with Season 3 with myself, James Jowsey, Phil Mansfield and Jimmy Chambers. Hello and welcome to this edition of the Red Pill Podcast. I'm joined as ever by Gemma. How are you, mate? I'm great, thanks. How are you? Splendid, splendid. Um, missing summer slightly, but um, but I'm hoping that's on its way shortly. Um, and then we've got Jousey in the house. Morning all. Same. How are you, buddy? Yeah, good. Taking on through Coronaville. We're talking about running today. Um, and we've left the sort of... When, when deciding the name of this podcast or sort of the topics for this podcast, we discussed the possibility of talking about perhaps sprinting or long distance running or running within within other sports, sort of multi multi discipline sports like triathlon or CrossFit, etc. We sort of decided that we'd keep it quite quite generalised and talk about running in general across across the spectrum and and come across some sort of talk about the mechanical side of running and the program design side of running and the injury side of running so so there's sort of that there's a there's a sort of running is 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 encompassing in 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 so much as that it is different sports within it within its own with its own bracket um you know there's the mechanics or the injury prevalence in marathon running is very different to sprinting it might not be there'll be different there are types of injuries and different types of mechanics and different types of training programs and this just sort of been the first appreciation of running is to 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 realize you are dealing with with you're dealing with different sports rather than um bracketing everything under under running hey jess yeah for sure um as with everything fitness any any single topic has such broad it's as broad as it is long um, and we'll climb down the ha- rabbit hole as we always do and have a lot of fun talking about it. I think one of the things that's, one of the things that's very, um, I think probably a good place to start is, is the injury side of running. I think, I, I think personally, I, I meet a lot of people who are held back from running across all disciplines. I think I've met a lot of people who, who run half marathons who don't want to take the jump to go to marathons because of injury. I meet people who run five kilometers who don't want to go and run 10 kilometers because of injuries or all the way down to, I meet people that won't even start running because of the, the, the fear of injuries. And I think whichever stage in that development you are, you also meet people within the CrossFit world who won't, who won't, who substitute the running during a workout for rowing, for example, because of the fear of, of running. So I think the first thing we should deal with, um, and Gemma, if, if I may bring bring you in here, is the sort of that fear of injury of running and 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 the sort of fear of pain and the startup pains that you go through as and when you begin running. Um, is it something people should be worried about, Gemma? Is it something that should they just go out and run? Should they crack on? What what's What's your feelings and experience on that? I think there's a difference between uh, pains that start when you start running and and a true injury. So I think that in the short answer, people should just go and run. Um, But there's a whole host of things that you could do that would reduce the risk of injury um, and also get your body fit for for running so I don't think it's uncommon for people to see like niggles that come on when you're first starting to run if you're uh, like a beginner or if you're just starting to run and then similarly if you change your running 
um, distances or speed or whatever it might be, then you are again probably going to see adaptations to your body, and then that might manifest in in niggles or injuries if you want to call it that. But if you could prepare your body and get a good program, then I think you're going to reduce that risk down. So, short answer: people should just run if that's what they want to do. What are those risks, Gemma? In terms of, in terms of what? Well, I mean, I mean, I, I, I wholeheartedly agree with you that uh, just start running. But, but you mentioned there that people are worried about the risks of running. Um, that, so one thing that holds them back from starting is is they they're worried about those risks. What 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 typical? I mean, Jouse, jump in as well, buddy. What talk, what typical risks are we are we talking about? I mean, I'll start off. People often say, "I'm worried about my knees." Um, yeah. What 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 are those what are those common common factors or common risks that people tend to to bring up when when not starting running, if you like, or reasoning for not starting running? I think probably the most common things that I would see are people that struggle with things like shin pain or calf pain or foot pain, uh, knees, <laughs> hips. I mean, anything lower limb really. People will potentially sort of struggle with or be concerned about um one of the most common things i think i hear is that as you just said people are struggling or concerned about their knees um and a lot of people will be worried that about the impact of the running on their knees but there's reasonable evidence to suggest that actually running doesn't increase the risk of things like arthritic changes or cartilage damage and actually by load bearing um and working through and running have an impact you're improving your bone health so certainly that's one thing that I try and sort of think about with people obviously they've got pre-existing conditions if they have had knee problems in the past then we would really look at how to start them running and how you'd almost gradually build up their running as opposed to sort of say right just go off and run 5k um, which is sensible for anyone really you, you build things up do you see a difference between the level of fitness and the process you just described there so the process is is a, a very sort of linear build up slowly i think that i think you know all running any coaches in the world i think one thing we all got in common or they all stay is build up slowly and you've got your sort of your 10 percent rule and your you know you never build up with more than 10 percent in volume or intensity per week etc 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 um but does the does the guidance change as you, as you, as you, based on your ability, your fitness ability. So, because you played uh, top level football ten years ago, and you're relatively fit, but you want to start running, you're worried about your knees, or you are a a dad that has never run in his life and is feeling the sort of um, the pork pies are catching up, if if you like, um, and feels that maybe wants to start running. Do you find the advice changes or do, would you give different advice to one group versus another group? Or is it, does it stay consistent that we, we just should try and slowly build up? I think that is a great question. I think ultimately with those two examples, I'd probably do the same thing in terms of build up to something um, rather than just say, well, yeah, you used to run like 10K in a game, or whatever it might have been. And, but for however many years you haven't run, I would still say build it up because it also builds confidence with people. Um, and by giving them 
a success if you want. So actually you can go and run two miles without any pain. Therefore it is sort of increases their confidence perhaps. So I think on that side of things, I probably would do. If you have somebody that is pretty good runner, say somebody can, I don't know, do their 5Ks in under 20 minutes. So a reasonably decent runner, but wants to build to 10K, I think I might work slightly differently, but I'd still probably err on the side of caution. But perhaps that's just because a lot of the people I work with are either have injuries or are coming back from an injury or avoid injuries. So, so let's just, um, let's say that then I'm, and I know this is potentially a difficult question, Gemma, but I'm starting running again. How do I tell the difference between those startup pains that you're, you're describing there to sort of, uh, I think what you're saying is that the progression is, is linear. I think, if, so, if someone can run five kilometers in under 20 minutes, then they're a good enough runner to start building towards 10K. I think you would probably yeah. naturally naturally say that. So so let's let's deal with the let's deal with the person who squats, spikes, uh, is in reasonably good shape, uh, versus the person who's not in good shape. We sort of agreed that the process of building up running would be the same for those two people, and we're not gonna let ourselves be sort of tarnished or or sort of our thought processes change based upon what their sort of current fitness level is because running on it and its own is a sort of quite unique uh, entity. Um, so I begin running then and I start to feel these startup pains. How do I, and I know it's a difficult question, but how do I differentiate between what, what we're describing here as startup pains and I need to see a physiotherapist or I should hold back or I should, or I should not push it any further. Can you can you try to, or is there any, or Jouse, jump in if you feel if if, if, you, if you can, but like, what 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 should we be looking for? And also, if coaches are listening to, how would you, what should they be looking for in their athletes with these startup pains? I think that if you have something that is persistent, um, or what I would describe as acute pain, like a sharp pain, something happened when you were running, you felt sharp pain on the inside of your knee and then you couldn't continue or it was enough that you felt like you had to reduce your pace down those that potentially be something I would be more concerned about over a bit of perhaps aching on your and being specific but aching in your lateral hip because you run a bit further than you would normally do so on the side of your hip because you've run a bit further than you would normally do but then that resolves within a period of time and you don't experience it again when you're running I think um, the key things that I'd be concerned about are an acute problem. So something that's happened and is either sharp pain or persistent pain, I would say perhaps that's when you want to start looking to, to speak to somebody else about it. But if you get normal sort of muscular aches or pain, that pain may be the wrong word, but aches that resolve after you finish running, you're not persistently getting them, then I would be slightly less concerned. But yeah, interested to see what Jarvis thinks. Yeah, Gemma, you're spot on. I think I think the issue comes in saying it's people's classification of pain because, like I said, going back to my marathon training, I remember at one point going out every day uh, for about a week, and it was like right ankle would be sore, painful. Then the next day, it was my left knee. Then the day after that, it was my right hip. And 
if I listened to the pain, I probably wouldn't have kept running. Um, it definitely consistency, like like you said within that statement there, like the consistent pain that's been there for a while is something you maybe then need to get looked at. But yeah, people's especially people that haven't come from uh, highly active or big history of sport they can get very worried at it's quite natural for them to get worried about pain uh, occurring and then think that pain equals injury um and we know that pain and injury aren't necessarily uh linked pain can sometimes just be pain <laughs> uh which obviously you can go into more depth on gem or um in terms of pain science but yeah that's the keeping running is key um but running at the running at the right level um like we talked about in the podcast last week with in terms of the amount of force going through the body when we run or sprint depending on what that is the force going through the body is a lot greater than you think so which is why we have to especially for people that are fit people that have been fit or are fit. Like I, I see it a lot with CrossFitters who came from running, went to CrossFit, reduced the running volume down. And then because they've still built, they've got good leg strength, they've still got good aerobic capacity, they go out and they run. But because then they run the same distance that they used to run when they were regularly running. And then from that point, they then give themselves pain um, because they're not actually um, conditioned to they're not conditioned to run anymore. They're not conditioned to deal with that forces for that amount of time repetitively. Um, so yeah, like, like you said, regardless of how fit you are or how unconditioned you are building up, building up slowly is key for me. So let's, um, uh, Gemma, you said without being too specific, I think I'm going to push you back into an answer there and I'm going to ask you to you, both of you guys to be a little bit more specific um what are the classical again again come this comes a bit of public health warning for those at home sort of you know uh, of course if you do have pain and injury you, sh- you you know you should you should seek 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 so, some advice but what typically would be the differentiation between uh i need to go and see someone now or i should just keep running i think we should i think we should be more specific than we're, than we're being here. And I think one thing I'll talk about from, from my personal experience is Achilles pain. Um, had runners on my books and in terms of coaching runners on my books for the best part of 20 years. And maybe I've just been lucky. Um, but uh, actual runners that, that run linear, not, not discussing football players or rugby players here, but actual runners, I've never had an Achilles snap or tear um in in 20 in 20 years of coaching now that might be a bit of luck but but typically achilles pain is something that comes with beginning running again and getting started again and it's something that does slowly and gradually go away even though it can become very tender and very painful it's something that does disappear um so so that's one that i'll start with for example and give us give an example is that achilles pain especially the achilles pain that is that is bad in the first kilometer and then goes away. I think for any running, one golden piece of advice is 
you are not allowed to have an opinion about your injury until you've hit one, one and a half kilometers. Um, again, take taken with the context that it deserves, as Gemma said, if it's sharp pain where you physically can't wait bare, then you shouldn't run one and a half kilometers on it. But if it's pain where you can run, but it's all this sort of this sort of blend between stiffness and pain, and you can't quite differentiate between stiffness and pain, then it's probably something that's okay to run on. Uh, and it's especially relevant with, with the Achilles. Um, and so you should be judging your pain after five to 10 minutes of running, one, one, one and a half, two kilometers. There, if you still have the pain, perhaps it's something to listen to potentially a little bit more. Um, so there you go, guys. I've given a sort of um, an example from the, from, from the Achilles. Uh, Gemma, you mentioned lateral hip. Um, Joust, come in with any examples. Let's be a little bit more specific and give people the sort of, yeah, some ideas of, of when to stop and when not to stop. If Okay, if I stick with the lateral hip then, I think that's probably one of the most common places that people will get pain if, particularly if their running style perhaps needs looking at or maybe not style or their, their sort of, again, fitness might not be the wrong word, but the lateral hip is one of the most common places for you to lose energy at when you're running and I think jazz will go into biomechanics a bit more later on and I think that if you what I would say is that if you as you said immediately get pain when you're running within the first say kilometer I think it's reasonable for you to continue if it's not sharp it's almost trying to differentiate like between discomfort because you're getting yourself moving and your body's working and and pain um the other sort of side of it would be if you can run for say 5k and then you start to gradually get more and more of that pain in the outside of the hip and it progressively worsens I would want to look a bit more at trying to address that so I think if it was something that was limiting your distance I would potentially want to look at it Um, or if it was limiting your progression I would want to look at it as well. So when you say limiting your progression, are you talking about in terms of volume or in terms of speed you're running at or in terms of frequency per week or all of the above? All of the above, yeah. I think if it's something that's limiting you and it is persistent, then potentially that would be the time and I would want to sort of have a look at it. If you get it once every two or three times that you run, um, but it settles off and you don't get pain the next day, then I would probably be slightly less concerned about it. But if it's persistent, it's something that you're potentially not doing, but your body is doing as a compensation. And if you had someone look at it, then you might be able to improve it. And that sort of feels a bit like a a professional and a personal opinion because I'm a diabolical runner, utterly tragic. Um, And this is something that I've had myself. So, Okay. So, so just let's, let's stay on the lateral hip then. Um, Let's look at so so they have the lateral hip pain and it is something mechanical um, and it needs to be uh, looked at. What does Gemma mean when she says it is something mechanical? What what what's what's she talking about there? And and what can runners do if they do feel that that lateral hip pain? How do, firstly, as coaches, how do we understand that lateral hip pain? Um, because now we're sort of differentiated between. I gave the example of Achilles pain, which is. Achilles hurts, crack on. Lateral hip pain, you've, you've, it's constant. It's it's after running rather than before running. It, it comes on later in runs rather than at the beginning of runs. And it's all of those warning signs that, that Gemma mentioned 
previously. What is happening mechanically and what can we do about it? With the lateral hip pain, like like Gemma said there, she said that she used the, the terminology that we use a lot, which is obviously like as a leak of energy. Um, and what we mean by, what Gemma means by the leak of energy and what we mean by the leak of energy is that, like we said, with as the foot hits the floor, there's up to four times body weight going through through a single leg. So that is creating a lot of force traveling up through the leg every time the foot impacts. That force has to be dissipated and controlled somewhere. And what happens, think about um, basically the site of pain or injury, the energy leakage is happening at the hip because that is where all the force is being sent to. And the analogy, yeah, we use we use a lot is it's is the person that's overstressed that goes down, that's overworked that goes down with stress, not the person that's underworked. Um, and that's pretty much the same with the body and uh, the way the body communicates is, and the way we we sometimes unfortunately misinterpret the signals in a sense of going, oh, there's a problem with the this tissue because this tissue is giving me pain it's like that tissue is communicating with you and it's communicating that it's that it's under stress doesn't mean there's anything necessarily wrong with that tissue unless there's obviously uh, an injury like an actual injury as in uh something snapped something's torn like that is like like Gemma said the extreme pain that is communication of right now i'm physically injured but these overuse injuries uh, like the lateral hip, which comes on later. The reason it comes on later is because that tissue has been overworked for that period of time that we've been that you've been running for. Um, so, so what's the solution to that, Bud? What, what what do we do about that? So we we understand that, of course, that tissue is is saying, "Look, I've had enough here." Rather than it saying, "I'm bad," uh, it's saying, "I've had enough," and it's actually calling out for attention. Like the naughty kid in class, there's no such thing as naughty kids. They're just kids that need need some more attention, and you pay more attention to that kid, and that kid gets better. What's the strategy here? How, how what do we then need to do? Go get it looked at at this point, or go get your running mechanics looked at. Um, is is one thing technically we need to see? Go get uh, an assessment. What in terms of what you could look at doing without actually seeing anybody is if you are just doing running, what you probably need to do is start incorporating some strength training into, into your program. So by strength training, um, that is all, as we discussed last week, it's all relative. So body weight, like we're dealing with body weight during, during running. So actually walking lunges is strength training for running. It replicates ground reaction force. It's, slowly loading the tissues and it's allowing more absorption of well it's allowing the the muscles to be strong enough to absorb the force um so starting with there but typically um what happens with the lateral hip for example is as it is normal so when when the foot hits the floor we've got what we call a, a translation of the hip in the frontal plane so if my right foot hits the floor uh, my hips will naturally glide slightly to the right, and what we'll see, what you'll see is this happens in in everybody. Like it's not the hip doesn't stay directly stacked above the foot. There is that deviation off in the frontal plane. If you observe the very best runners in the world, they have less deviation than than anybody else, which is why they're 
like I said, they're saving time, they're saving energy and able to, to transfer energy around the body faster. So too much deviation in that frontal plane is where all that force is then being absorbed in the hip. Um, so what we need to look at is how strong the, the muscles around the hip are at controlling that, that lateral, lateral glide. Jaws, I feel like you're teasing us here, mate. Um, I feel like you're uh, you say you're giving us a lot of good information. I don't know what you think, Gemma, but um, I think we should ask Jaws to do a little bit of biomechanics for us. I think we should sort of go down the rabbit hole here a bit, bud. Um, let's, um, if you didn't mind, you sort of you talked about impact forces you talked about uh, energy traveling through the body we've talked about energy leakages um sticking to primarily the bone motions let's look at the biomechanics of uh, of of running uh, let's go into it let's let's do it um now we're here if you wouldn't mind just just taking us through uh, the biomechanics of running and what happens at the hip and and yeah for for the listeners at home that if you want if you if you want to get down and geeky with us, let's uh, let's do it. What do you reckon, Jim? Should we get him to do it? This is the best bit. Yeah, I agree. Jaws. Uh, so, yep. so Jim, uh, we'll get coffee, mate, because um, I'd imagine this will take 10 minutes or so. Uh, yeah. And uh, give Jaws the floor, eh? See you in a bit. T- 10 minutes to get past the big tour. Cool, buddy. Let's, um, uh, let's, let's go. We're just just talking about the, the foot as one bone, right? Yeah, you carry on with that, bud. Yeah, so the the foot is only one bone because apparently it only dorsiflexes at the ankle. Um, But anyway, no, so uh, with running, obviously there's different strike patterns depending on what type of runner you are. So some people are heel strikers, some people are mid-foot, some people are forefoot. But the mechanism of the foot in a sense of when it's actually off the floor, what's really cool is that the, the foot goes into an like an inverted position. So what invert what an inverted position is like? Imagine if any of you have done like a lateral ankle sprain, like where it roll where your ankle rolls outwards. So naturally, when the foot's off the floor, it goes into that kind of predetermined. That sorry, that it goes naturally into that position. So then, as the foot hits the floor it always hits on the lateral aspect and then rolls inwards which so pronation is a is a natural is a natural part of foot foot mechanics and we need the pronation of the foot to help with the absorption because what happens during pronation is it's um so the arch, the arch of the foot kind of rolls inwards towards towards the floor. Like the further it rolls, that's where we hear the terminology like overpronation, um, which yes can be can be a too much pronation can then lead to a secondary another issue, um, which we can talk about in a bit. But yeah, that that spreading of the bones, it's like a, an actual spreading to to provide a nice big surface area to absorb the force. And it allows the tissue of the foot and everything to basically provide a lot of stability in in the, the absorption of impact. So what happens is that so we hit on the outside and the foot rolls rolls inwards, we'll say, um, and we want that that rolling inward mechanism of the foot creates internal rotation of the tibia, 
and when we look at knee mechanics like the knee has a capacity to like we can't consciously internally rotate the tibia or the knee so we, we can't control that all we can do is turn our foot inwards or outwards but that literally comes from our hip it doesn't we can't control that as human beings um so the the ability to get rotational forces comes from the foot mechanism so that foot hitting the floor and the pronation drives internal rotation so that internal rotation coming from the impact of the foot hitting the floor comes up to the tibia and then the femur then begins to internally rotate as well so that is then front leg and gait mechanics has has hip internal rotation but when we're when we are when we're well when we're doing any motion there's always three planes of movement at in at every joint muscle and bone at one time so internal rotation is driven from the ground reaction force we're obviously running in the sagittal plane we're running in a straight line in this instance so as as my foot hits the floor now my body weight and body mass is traveling forwards over my foot so the dorsiflexion of the foot increases as we go through the gait cycle based off my upper body now moving over a planted static foot um so that's then drives the knee flexion um within the motion um and yeah and my hip is then beginning to travel forwards over my ankle so that's kind of sagittal plane and frontal plane uh, sorry sagittal plane and transverse plane uh summarized the frontal plane motion which is the frontal plane glide so that comes from say as we as our foot hits the floor we've got two motions in the frontal plane so the foot hits the floor that impact of the foot hitting the floor the force there will drive what we call a superior an upward translation of the hip relative to the other and Again, the degrees at which we're talking about here, like it's it's minimal, minimal degrees, but it will happen. The greater amount of degrees that you see shows the lack of ability to control the force, which is therefore like where where you see the the issues with the uh, more novice runners versus the the or higher level runners. So the the ground reaction force will naturally come up and create that upward motion of the pelvis there. And likewise, because all our body is constantly doing is finding how to maintain center of mass in a dynamically changing environment, that change in center of mass as the foot, as the, the range of mo as the, the outside of the foot hits the floor and then it rolls inwards. Naturally that's going to change where the center of mass in that millisecond that it happens changes where the center of mass does, which then promotes that lateral motion of the hip. So if my right foot hits the floor, my hip glides slightly to the right to compensate for that center of mass changing from the outside of the foot to the inside of the foot, because it will naturally have to counterbalance as we go. If you think about that, in a more simple context, if I if I bend forwards with my head, my hips naturally go backwards because we've got to constantly, there's, there's always a, if we're going one way in one direction, it's, it's going to deviate somewhere else down the chain to, to maintain as much center of mass, well, distribute the weight 50-50 um, as much as it can across the planes. Does that? 
kind of go into it? Yeah, it, it, yeah, yeah. It does a wonderful job. I think the the three dimensionality of everything there is <clears throat> is is exactly what what people need to get need to get a grasp of. I think you mentioned there the the sort of how important the foot was and how how the foot isn't one bone and that it is 26 bones. Um, I think one thing that I always find very interesting is a sort of that, that unlocking process, um, that unlocking process of the feet or the locking up process of the feet. And I think when that goes, when that goes well or doesn't go well, the impact that can have on the rest of the system. Could you elaborate a little bit on that for us? Yeah, so like you said, on the impact side of things, the impact is a spreading of the bones. Like, so it's a spreading of the midfoot, um, which we see as pronation. So then the locking up mechanism that, that Phil's talking about there is is basically the the opposite the the opposite motion of that. So that the locking up is then the inversion of the of the midfoot, and what that does, like an inverted midfoot basically provides a high amount of joint stability so it almost lock like yeah literally locks the foot into a solid platform and for propulsion you want imagine if you wanted to jump like would you be able to jump higher stood on your uh kitchen floor or would you be able to jump higher if you were stood on two cushions so it's very much like that locking mechanism. We rely on the foot getting into that inverted position to be able to provide a a, a natural, uh, well, a natural um, biomechanical mechanism that allows for greater force to push off a solid, solid surface. So yeah, people, this is where the overpronation becomes becomes uh, an issue uh, in causing injuries. Is that people that overpronate don't necessarily get to the the locked up foot position and that's that is a process that can be can be trained and can can be helped and and the the reason why it causes the injury is is like i say the the muscles that using exactly the same process as we talked about before the muscles that help to decelerate the pronation of the foot and the tissue like the plantar fascia so plantar fasciitis is is the kind of the the chronic injury that we talk about within within people that overpronate um the arches collapse etc like that tissue is basically if it's overpronated and stays in pronation and doesn't get to that that locked up inverted position that tissue the the plantar fascia is basically under tension the throughout the whole gait cycle Whereas that's what we want in in any any sport in motion, but it, obviously we're talking about running now is is that on off of a muscle. A muscle has to be doing something, but then as the, it wants to get to a point in time within the motion where it's relaxing, and that's that's what's not happening in the plantar fasciitis. And likewise, what the where we started with all this and the lateral hip is the lateral hip is absorbing that force, and it's not ever getting to a position where it actually gets a, a little bit of respite or some help in that in that deceleration from another muscle. So Gemma, while you're while you're listening to that, of course, you're you you, you sort of brought in the lateral hip discussion there. And so is one of your first assessment protocols then to look at the feet? Um, or do you look at the hip? What what's your so, so for the coaches listening that would that have people that are helping they're helping running 
what, what, where, where do you start there? And, and is there any sort of quick tips for being able to see a foot that locks up or a foot that doesn't lock up and, and go through the mechanisms Jouse has just, just described for us? Yeah, I think that's a good question. I would say that I, when someone comes in and say they have lateral hip pain, the first thing they are anticipating or expecting me to look at would be the hip. And so I probably do start there, mainly because I think um, that helps sort of manage some of the expectations as well. But I would never just look at one area in isolation. So I'd then look at um, the opposite hip. I'd then look at the both feet to see what, um, at, like, like Jav just said, whether they are looking up, locking up, or whether they are um, sort of a, a, a more mobile foot. Um, I think the other thing I tend to look at a little bit, which I was going to ask you shortly, is about their footwear as well, because you see a lot of people that have gone and bought sort of insoles and things like that. So I, I, I like to see what what people are running in and whether they have bought any insoles and things like that. Um, I would say that looking at somebody in a forward lunge, in a backwards lunge, and looking at their positions of their foot, seeing if they can push up out of their foot, if it does sort of, and, and when we say lock up, is it, do they, are they able to maintain that arch when they're pushing up and off? I think a lunge is probably the, 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 one of the best places to look because it mimics the forefoot and the backfoot mechanics of running. Um, but it also allows you time to to look. So that's those are probably the things that I would say. So looking at um, single leg stance as well. So looking at people on one leg, do they have that stability? Um, looking at lunges and looking at um, through planes of motion on the foot as well. So you can can they can they move the foot in the frontal plane? Can they move the foot in the transverse plane? If you've got them against a wall on a little bit of a stretch and you drive their opposite knee across in a frontal plane, does the foot lock up on that side or does it, is it stuck in one position? Um, so I, yeah, there's where I'd probably start. Yeah, I think that's really useful. So I think what we're saying is, um, and I'll jump on, I'll answer your question about the the footwear shortly, mate, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think what, what, so, what 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 the point is there is that it's quite easy to see a foot that that locks up or doesn't lock up um and what we're trying to what we what we're saying is that both are essential on landing as the foot hits the floor so in that lunge example there as the foot hits the floor we're looking for a natural spreading of the foot we're looking for a natural uh, collapsing of the arch um and a controlled collapsing of the arch and i think is there it's I think I would look at the foot first and see what the foot was doing and and I would ask myself is that controlled if at any point in that sort of motion now I thought perhaps it wasn't controlled I would just take a glance up and look at the knee and if the knee's sort of shooting inwards it's probably not controlled motion from the lunge where if the knee is staying quite sort of straight and static but the foot is opening and spreading then I would be happy with that and and without being able to sort of give practical examples, that's the sort of best you can do as, as a coach there. Um, and then again, if you're asking them to do a walking lunge, as you, as you said there, Gemma, the back foot mechanics is of course the front foot does at some point during the swing phase become the back foot. And there we're looking for a reversing of that process whereby the, the, the bones in the, in the forefoot uh, become a little bit tighter and a little bit rigid. And you should see a lifting of the arch and you should see a sort of clearing of, clearing of space between the arch and, and the floor. Um, 
in preparation for for pushing off uh, with a with a preferably straight back leg, which is where the where the single leg stance for me for the back foot becomes a little bit more uh, sort of relevant in in my assessment procedure because if I can get them to stand with a straight back leg and then do some sort of arm movements, just gentle swinging arms from side to side in in the transverse plane, should allow you to see. Does the foot come in as you sort of, if I'm standing on my left leg and rotating towards the right, I should see a, a gentle collapsing of the arch. And as I rotate backwards towards the left, I should see a lifting of the arch. So just being able to have those two, those that, that simple test there and seeing does, does the athlete go through those? Uh, if they go through both of them, that's not necessary that, necessarily that, that everything's, everything's well and good. It's just a good indication of where to start. I think the next the next step in the assessment procedure then is 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 um, as as you say, Gemma. Uh, do they then do these these particular motions at the right timing? And that's a little bit more complex. And that might need that might need a little bit more sort of sort of expert help. But certainly, if you can see a foot that doesn't lock or a foot that, that doesn't unlock, you're on you're on the right path. From a from a training or a um developmental oh sorry Jim I was going to do footwork footwork was like we'll, we'll, I've, I've noted that down we'll do that before before the podcast ends but I just want to continue on this thread uh Jouse, I'm going to ask you can you can you adapt the foot can you can the foot change if you know as you get older and older and your shoes and boots and all the sorts of things that you've, you've worn can you adapt the foot position how easy is it and what do you do what sort of Give us give us three or four exercises and examples of of how if you can adapt the foot and your feelings on that, mate. Yeah, the the foot can be adapted. It is not it is not easy um, to do because the problem is that we've got for every time you're doing an exercise, you've also probably done twice as many steps where you're actually just reinforcing the the same pattern that you've already got. So it's it's a hard thing to change. Um, what we what we do know is obviously that I say the the foot has a huge huge nerve supply. There's as many the the nerve supply to the feet and the hands are pretty much identical um, in terms of uh, yeah the amount of nerves there, ha, ha, which is why pain in the foot hurts a lot because there's so many nerves in the area. It just getting foot pain instantly becomes quite debilitating. Um, but yeah, it can be changed. Sometimes it's not always going to be that visible, the actual change. Like I've, I've worked with uh, someone with bunions in the past, and although there's no actual, obviously the, the bunion has, or a hallux valgus has um, bone formation laid down on the on the side of the, the base of the big toe um, near the ball of the foot. Um, and once the bone has been laid down, like you can't change that, can't change the, the bone formation there. Like it's always going to be there, but this person was, was symptomatic, like had pain in the big toe and with, with exercise, um, we, we managed to actually get the bunion to become symptom free. So yes, the appearance of the foot was was still similar but the the function of the foot because like like anything when it comes to the appearance of the, like the appearance of or posture posture is just 
it has a factor in how the body works, but it doesn't mean that that's how the body, that's just the body starting position. What we have to be aware of, like, I might have somebody stood in front of me who has flat feet, but just because they have flat feet doesn't mean that they don't pronate when they should pronate and they don't supinate when they should supinate. It's just a start position. It's just a point in time. So if you are getting your feet checked by, by somebody, then what you need to look at is that are you being tested in more than one environment? If you're just getting your feet tested while you stood still on the spot, like that's not a significant enough um, testing procedure to determine whether you've got good foot mechanics or not because you're just still in space. So it needs to be tested whilst walking, needs to be tested whilst lunging, needs to be tested whilst running. People that I've worked with in terms of that, you will see people with flat feet that as soon as they start lunging, they're actually still, it still overpronates. Then as, when you start to increase the impact of the exercise, that actually foot begins to lock up because naturally as we increase the force production through the foot, that will stimulate nervous system to, to create some stability within the foot. So, so yeah, different environments will, will give different foot presentations. So it's important that we're assessing the foot across multiple, multiple domains. Um, which, which in itself, doing some barefoot lunging, like as simple as it is. I mean, we love lunges. Of course, we love lunges. But barefoot lunging, barefoot exercise, like it allows these nerves, like say they're putting them in shoes, basically, that might have a very small, like most shoes have a slight small um, support in the arch um, or how thick the soles are. It stops the feet being able to understand exactly what it needs to do so you can you can have people that i had i had one athlete a long time ago uh, i've still got the video somewhere um who literally like lun was lunging in in bare feet sorry was lunging in trainers and I, they had this issue with the lunge where i was i'd been working on it with them for a bit, consistently for a bit and they their foot was basically it wasn't locking up so they were almost the back foot of the lunge. It was like, so let's say it's the right leg. In the back foot position, the foot should be just facing, toes should be facing straight forward. But what was happening, the heel on that right foot was coming inwards. So effectively, the toes were facing out to the right. And I've been working on all the issues that I thought could do it. Um, and I was just getting no joy and no change. And literally then I tested them. I just got the, to take the shoes off. and the foot instantly went to being straightforward. But what did also happen was they fell over. <laughs> so they got to the end of the lunge and they, they fell over because they had no neurological understanding of that position. But it was almost like they'd been in shoes, like the, the proprioceptors within the foot didn't know where they needed to be relative to anything else. So it was a very much a neurological patterning issue, um, which, which like I say, by by training in barefoot actually just just improved over time because it could start to understand where the floor was and, and speaking to this person I said to, I was like do you do you ever walk around in barefoot they're like oh no I don't like being in barefoot like as soon as I get home uh, I either it keeps the, the kept, they kept the trainers on or they put slippers on so they never ever they had like a, yeah, a bit of a foot phobia thing going on but so that's how how important knowing your feet <coughs> sorry your feet 
being able to walk around barefooted is or do exercise in bare feet is a great training system in itself without getting into specifics of of uh, exercise yeah i think there's a there's a a wonderful insight joust um into the sort of barefoot and i think you answered um inverting there you answered Gemma's question about footwear as well i think that that is the i think that is the biggest issue um is the sort of the prescription of footwear in in the shops i think there's um the sort of the video analysis i mean you know there's no reason to be sort of sort of harsh it's people doing their jobs as best as they can but the video analysis that's provided in the shops is is uh yeah, is almost is almost pointless. I think getting the, the so-called running test done in, in the shop is <clears throat> is uh, is a is a is a waste of time. Really, they video you, but they're literally only videoing you from the sort of posterior angle. They're only looking at they're only looking at the calcaneus. They're looking at sort of the heel bone and 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 they're sort of taking judgments based around your Achilles angle. So they'll draw a line down down the the backside of your of your calf and then. And then indicate whether you're pronating or supinating based on where your based on where your uh, calcaneus is going. And, and and as we know that that you can have both pronation and and supination with with without necessarily the midfoot actions that that go with that. So I think the first thing with footwear is is it's it's seldom correct and i think that that's that is demonstrated by the fact of how many how many people aren't happy with their run shoes at, at the first hit um i think i hear i hear more often people come in to say it took me three or four goes of buying run shoes before i found the run shoes for me rather than people saying yes i went to a run i had a run test and i got the perfect footwear the first time it's very very rare that happens um and that's because the testing protocols within the shops are are simply not good enough um as they are currently <clears throat> um in terms of footwear i think the genuinely and i, I mean this uh I, I mean this as non-scientifically as it sounds um, it's going to be very, very difficult for you to pick the right pair of run shoes for you and your run style. Um, what is absolutely for sure is every brand out there will tell you that their model, their system, and their way of doing things is better than the next. Um, but the point is, is whether we whether we're going for Brooks, whether we're going for New Balance, whether we're going for Nike, whether we're going for uh, Mizuno or whatever it may be, they're they're not one of those companies has a shoe better than the other company. Um, and interestingly, I have sat with, um, I have sat with, um, a lot of people who, who have tried to tell me that their run shoes is better than the other run shoes. And I think the only people in the world who actually have produced a run shoe that are better than everybody else was obviously the Nike shoe that, that, that that produced a, a fast shoe, not necessarily a biomechanical, biomechanically perfect shoe, but a but a shoe that that enabled people to run quicker. So that that leads me on to the first question: Is are you going for performance or are you going for a sort of stability? And and when I mean stability, I mean lack of injury, sort of stability in your training. Uh, if you're going for speed, then then there's then there's no doubt there's only one pair of shoes you should buy. Um, 
and um, whether people like it or whether people don't like it, if you want to run faster, you uh, you run in the night carbons, um, the four percent, and 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 that's just how it is because they're the best running shoes on the market. Um, if we're talking about stability and longevity, um, then then yeah, choosing the right run shoes is is personal preference. I it's very very rare for anybody I meet um needs an orthotic i think um yeah uh, orthotics are for the most part um a very very good way for people to make uh, a lot of money um there are some there are some pathologies or some diseases of the feet which require an orthotic uh where you've got sort of the the completely sunken forefoot or the the, the the malalignment or things like that where where an orthotic does help people actually live a normal life and enable people to walk properly but i would seriously seriously if you have a relatively anything close to a normal foot um you do not need an orthotic and you should not be using orthotics and of course that will that will annoy a lot of people um but it will only annoy them because there's some truth in it um so yeah, you shouldn't be paying 200, 250 pounds or dollars for for orthotics. You should be, as Jao says, working on your feet, working on your mobility of your feet and the range of your feet uh, before you go anywhere near an orthotic. And with that said, that then means that the run shoe then is the one that, that is comfortable most. I don't think I know any runners who haven't been through 10 pairs of, of run shoes until they found the ones that suited them. Um, your most your startup shoes where I think the overpronation shoes are are gone. Um, I forgot to mention Asics on the list also run, make make great run shoes. Um, your overpronation shoes in terms of your sort of Asics Kyanos and things like that. I think where we can we should avoid using them. I think if you do have that overpronating foot, you should be working on strength training and developing your feet stability before you're trying to do it through your shoes. Um, a little bit in the same ilk as Jaws has just described, the um, the having having a neutral shoe on does train your feet. It makes your feet work harder. Um, that potentially does lead to the plantar fasciitis issue. So again, as Jim has stated at the start of the podcast, managing your intensity and your volumes there become very very important. But you're better off running less, training your feet to be stronger um, than you are running more in a built up shoe and then potentially not fixing the problem that exists within within the feet um so to answer the, the, the shoes question is is one don't use orthotics at all um secondly work on your feet make sure your feet are are able to control you and do their job correctly and thirdly the run shoe is as long as you're choosing a run shoe that's not too built up or not too minimal sort of safe ground in the middle um probably the best thing to do is pick the run shoe you like the color of um and uh, as long as it's from so one of the big brands you 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 won't go far wrong um and you'll find you can fine tune from from that point um <clears throat> does that answer your question Gemma? it's perfect phil thanks and i didn't realize we were going for a sponsorship with nike but that's great Nike would need to listen to it first no mate i think credit <laughs> with cre- credit with credit with credit oh due. no i, I um, agree I think when you um, 
I mean, to be honest, Nike Nike struggled for many years in the running market. You know, they initially had the market eighties, nineties. You would wouldn't run anything else, and towards the late nineties and through the early early two thousands, there Nike fell off fell off the running market and your sort of Brooks and your Asics and sort of came a new balance really, really came to the Mizuno as well, came to the sort of four and did a wonderful job. And, you know, all right, Nike now have released a, have released a shoe in the last sort of five years or so, which has blown the market away. And, and I think fair play to them. I think innovation and technology and putting that much money and research into creating the shoe has been, is a wonderful process and I, I love what they've done. Uh, they've changed running forever. Um, and I don't think there's any other run companies that can, can claim that. Um, so let, let, you, let, you have the Nikes yourself, Phil? I do, mate. Yes, I do. Um, so how, how good are they really? They're like, good, what, mate. Like, what's your, like, what's your experience of them? Like both as a, Yeah. As, a, as wearing them and also like your athletes, some of them have used them. Like how, how good have they been for the running performance? It's, it's significant, bud. It is, it is significant. Um, and I, it, it's, I mean, it's difficult to put a number on it, um, but it's, it's, it's at least 10 seconds per kilometer, which, which is a lot. Um, as in I put them on I go out I get a pair right now yeah if you took your heart rate now if you went and ran five kilometers now at 140 heart rate and then you put a pair of Nike shoes on and you ran the five kilometers 140 heart rate and you ran the second five kilometers with the Nikes for and we'll say there's some residual fatigue in you you'll still run 10 seconds quicker in the second 5k and uh, yeah even with even at your uh, father's pace if you know what I mean your dad's pace that you run at um, probably say more grandfather's pace but well yeah I was going to say when, when you said when you said earlier oh, you've got to be able to run a 20 minute 5k to be able to, to do 10k I was like well I best <laughs> I know oh, no, <laughs> so that's a little bit harsh yeah <laughs> I've never run 10k ever in my life if that was the case <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm definitely not getting there. That's for sure. Yeah, so they're 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 definitely worth. Uh, if you're going for speed, and you're trying to run record times. You, I mean, I, in fairness, um, New Balance have just released their version of it. Uh, and interestingly enough, they changed they've changed the laws inside running, where all new product, um, all new sort of product to the market have to be within the sport for two years before you're allowed to compete in them. And interestingly enough, that rule came in from the 1st of April. So there was a big panic for New Balance to get their shoes out before the 1st of April so that people could run in them this year. Otherwise, there comes that two-year delay. So I know the New Balance have rushed their, their version of them to market and they're charging serious money for them. I mean, they're more expensive than the Nikes. Uh, those I haven't had an opportunity to work with yet and see any results from. I'm excited to see that. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll hopefully, probably, I'd imagine we'll see similar results with those as we saw with the Nikes. Um, but if you're going for times, if you're competing and it's important what time you come across the finish line, then you, you're stupid not to be running the Nikes because you're just giving everybody else around you a, a 
five percent advantage. Um, uh, yeah, incredible, isn't it? Yeah, I love it, but I think uh, I love innovation and technology, and I love people that go out there and and dare to change change to change the, the industry. Um, so it's, fine, it's fine line. Like, well, I mean, we're getting a bit philosophical now. It's fine line, isn't it? And then going, well, how do we know? Well, we know sport. That's a sport science innovation. Like I say so. It is coming from science, but like, where? How close to then? Like with the the one fifty nine, um, Kipchoge. Like, how close are we to? How close are they? Have they maxed out? Have they topped out? genetic potential like can humans run sub two without innovation now um is that ever going to be possible and uh, we've potentially got a roger bannister effect haven't we now again like everyone thought it was impossible to to go uh sub four on the mile and he did it and then within the same year it was dozens of people oh yeah however many like so, that, that, so that might all come question, up the doors, but yeah. will, will they remove the innovation for people to do it like, I, th- I don't think I don't think they ne- I don't think they'll need to remove the innovation. It will happen by itself. I think now it's been proven you can run two hours. Within the next five years, we'll see people in normal run shoes run sub two hours. Um, I'll always go on the side of the psychology there. Uh, I don't think sports science is as good as we think it is. I don't think we're as good at sports science as we think we are. Um, I think a lot of it lies in in the athlete's own desire to be better, um, and I think a lot of the stuff we should be focusing on as coaches is is empowering the athletes to to be better themselves rather than rather than telling them that our training programs are something special, although they are good training programs. <clears throat> I still believe that a lot of the power lies with inside the athlete themselves and their own motivation, um, and I think just. Yeah, within within a couple of years, we'll start seeing people running in normal shoes for two hours, and 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 it will keep going down. But I don't think it is necessarily a a, a result of uh, sports science. I think it might be more a sports psychology that needs to look at that. Um, as you say, the the Roger the Bannister effect. I think that's that's proven across all sport. Um, I think. Um, I think that's probably enough for this time. I think this is calling for a part two. We've talked through that it's uh, when when the pain comes, if it's acute, if it's persistent, if it's still there after two kilometres, if it's there in the evenings, uh, if you're struggling when you wake up in the morning, it's probably something to listen to. If it's something that disappears in the first two kilometres or so, it's probably something that's fine to crack on with. We've talked about the sort of understanding the mechanics of running. We've, dis- we've discussed how you how you then train the feet to work and support you better. Um, and I think next time we'll probably jump in and talk about actual sets and reps, how long how long you should run for, how to build up a training program for different distances and different events and different sports and, um, and take you from there. Um, we've enjoyed this session, guys. Thanks for your time. Um, yeah, a lot of fun as always. Thanks, guys. Red Pills Mentorship is an intense 12-month syllabus where you'll go deep down the rabbit hole, supported by Phil Mansfield and James Jowsey. It's a mixture of structured modules and live days where you'll get to share and discuss topics while putting the knowledge gained through the module into practice. This is the perfect opportunity to go to the next level as a coach, trainer or therapist. 
For more information, head to our website or contact us at hello at redpilltraining.com.